0: Hello and welcome to A Place for Truth, where we bring together Reformed pastors and theologians for conversations around today's cultural issues. Enjoy the conversation. You have not come to a desert mountain. You have come to the living God. You have come to the heavenly city.
1: We're going to talk about what 2020 revisited, evaluating convictions and practices in the Reformed and Evangelical Church three years after COVID. And when we say Reformed and Evangelical, all of us hold not only to the doctrines of grace for soteri- soteriology, but also Reformed confessions, Reformed worship. What does it mean to worship God in the maximum way that he has called us to in Scripture? So to that end, I think we all share, even amongst our differences, we all share a common conviction. That truth, the gospel began in Genesis chapter one, verse one, and it begins and it for, it ends with the glorious consummation of the final kingdom of Jesus Christ that he is in the process of restoring right now as affirmed by the resurrection. And so to that end, um, we want to talk about wh- where are we at three years from now? And we talk about the broad evangelical and reformed church. So we're kind of going to use those terms uh, simultaneously. But I think in some ways what we're talking about uh, here to frame this is not so much. Any anything that calls itself a church, we understand there are a lot of progressive churches that are either synagogues of Satan or they have their lampposts is long gone. Uh they may call themselves a church, it's a church in name only at this point or a, a fake church. So what we're talking about is a church is that we have long considered allies. We share a common confession with, we share a, a common culture with. Uh, they hold a sola scriptura. Uh so when we're saying we're narrowing it, reformed and evangelical, it would be what one might call the conservative churches. How is the church in America doing? So to that end, I have three kind of b- big, broad topics tonight, and they are interspersed, and we'll see where this conversation goes. So revisiting 2020 in the Christian response. Question number one, how and when should a church suspend public worship?
2: Well, I think our forebears maybe answer that question a lot better than we do, and it's language we often don't hear today, but they said to one another often, I will be there at church on Sunday unless I am. Here's the language providentially hindered. That is to say, uh, God himself would have to arrange circumstances to stop them. Um, I would say that that should equally be the case with the um, cancellation uh, of uh, public worship. Uh, If there is uh, dramatically inclement weather, obviously, uh, severe snowstorms, typhoons, hurricanes, or so on, Um, such vast sickness in the church that the vast majority of people couldn't attend. Those might be occasions. I do know churches that uh, in the center and north of the United States that even if 90% of the people can't get to church, they'll still hold church, and I appreciate that. Uh, But the idea that one would uh, suspend public worship simply on the grounds that some individuals might get a serious illness is, to my way of thinking, not biblical, and it's also utterly impractical. As a matter of fact, COVID is not the only dangerous virus that's in the air, and it's not the only dangerous communicable disease. So um, I'm of the opinion that uh, unless the Lord himself arranges circumstances to keep the church from meeting, the public worship uh, needs to occur. The Bible doesn't specifically say that, but uh, it's such a matter of great import that uh, I think that at least should be an operating presupposition.
1: Well said, Andrew. Yeah, no, it was well said. Right. <laughs> Question number two: Was it right or wrong to take PP, what's called PP money or government money, that was given as a either a uh, a loan that could be paid back or a loan that was forgivable for by churches for operating expenses? Which again, is now we look back during 2020, uh, once the government said we are we we we're, we're going to demand that you suspend worship you can apply for a loan to make up for lost tithes or whatever else it would be. Is is that wrong? Is it right or wrong to to take government money to operate a church?
3: That's not a difficult one. No, they should not take it. And I think that all the churches that I know of who did take PPP money took it with the full intention of treating it as not a not simply a loan that would be paid back but a loan that would be forgiven and all of the churches that i know of actually saw through saw it through to become um, a forgivable loan and i know of one church for example in indianapolis that brought it to the congregation so that the congregation hashed it out and there were There were strong opponents within the congregation, opponents to it. But in the end, as as I recall, the the church ended up receiving that money. Of course, I know of another church where I was, that the congregation was never involved until after the fact. Then, Then the congregation was informed at a business meeting that the elders had received $1.3 million of PPP money with the intention of seeing it through to be a forgivable loan. And that directly contradicted the church's constitution, which also became a provocation for not only for many to um, decide to leave, but it became also a uh, confirmation for many others that departure from that church was now necessary and and right.
4: I think one of the things we should consider with this is we have the, the, the churches who are willing to take the money were the very churches on the other side of the equation saying we should keep the church and the state separate. But when it came to money, they didn't want to do that. And churches like Christ Bible Church want to keep the church and state separate when it comes to money, but will speak into issues and confront the government. And And so it's it's very rarely a question of if, but where, when we come to these principles. Everybody wants some level of separation of church and state. It's It's where. And uh, I think it speaks to a, a hypocrisy and a misunderstanding of Romans 13 that you would say, hey, we got to keep the church and state separated, but we're going to take the state's money.
5: I think for many churches, it it also betrayed the church that took the money. It betrayed a, betrayed a weakness within the church that uh, either the leadership didn't think the church would continue to support itself, you know, through the difficulty. And so they needed to turn outside of the church, you know, for that financial support. And so It just showed itself as a natural weakness i think that was there that uh these churches weren't as healthy maybe as the numbers uh the numbers of people there might have said it was or those that were coming were not really all that committed to the church
2: uh wherever government money goes there eventually goes government control i realized in this case um uh the uh, custodian and source the was uh, private through private banks and so on, but was obviously in conjunction with uh, federal policy. So whether there was any actual control this time, it set a very bad precedent. Uh, churches that will take government money eventually are gonna be subject to government control. And uh, that's why we must uh, stress the the independence of the church, the independent authority of the church. And that's why sphere sovereignty is so vitally important. The state does have a vital role to play, much smaller, I should say, than is recognized by most people today, but its role is very different from the church. And for the state to be funding uh, the church, even in alleged extreme cases like this one, is really to deny sphere sovereignty, and it is to sacrifice the independent authority of the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ doesn't have the right to give up its independent authority. The church belongs to Christ and therefore doesn't have a right to do that. It's it's not like an individual. You get in hard times, you need a loan. Well, the church, the church belongs to Christ specifically, and its money belongs to Christ in a unique way. So it sets a bad precedent.
4: Yeah, and you think about, again, Ardell's mentioning Baptist churches here. They're being brought to congregations. The Baptists were the only denomination really to never have a state church, to never be funded by the government, by states, and you have some of those Baptist churches saying, Hey, we're holding the traditional Baptist things, so we gotta, you know, separate ourselves from people who want to Christianize society. We're holding to traditional Baptist polity and historical beliefs, but then you're funding from the state, which is no Baptist would have done that.
3: To pick up on something Bob was saying, I think that what it showed was a lack of belief, a lack of faith on the part of the leadership of the church. They never appealed to the congregation. Look, we're coming into some hard times here. They never made that appeal to the congregation. Instead, they were looking at the books. And to be crass, if I can be crass for a moment, the wealth of the church is not measured by the depo- the bank deposits that are that are current the wealth of the church is the congregation and when when congregants are appealed to the pockets are deep and they will pull out what is necessary and and so in my estimation what it really displayed was that the leadership did not have the did not have a substantive, deep abiding faith in the in the providence of God to provide for whatever needs the uh, congregation had. and they never made that appeal to the congregation itself. It, it, to me it was a very, very sad scenario.
2: I'd like to provide a quick personal anecdote to verify what Ardell said, though of course I lead a Christian think tank. It's not a church, but the principle, I think, is applicable. Um, When this PPP money was offered, I thought about it for two seconds, and then I said, Lord, you've taken care of us thus far, 22 years or whatever it was. We're just going to trust you. You can provide in ways we can't even imagine. Well, by God's grace, uh, the uh, finances of that year, 2020, April of 20 to April of 21, were better than any five previous years combined in the whole history god blesses obedience and god blesses faith but we don't have church leaders that operate in faith today they operate in fear and god doesn't bless fear god blesses faith not just in finances by the way but that's one of them and that's a clear mark
3: it very well may be that there were folks in churches who decided to not Give to their churches because of PPP money, such as my wife and I, who gave to works like, uh, like yours and others during that year. I was just going to
5: add uh, my own testimony too, to to uh, uh, to Andrews. I think twenty twenty for us as a church was one of one of the best years we ever had financially. Uh, the way the Lord just was gracious to us, so very grateful for that.
4: Yeah, I'll add to that. The church I was at at the time, Riverview Baptist, uh, they had a fantastic um, financial year, 2020. I asked a lot of pastors, a lot of pastor friends. um, All the mid-sized churches that I asked were experiencing the same thing. They were experiencing more giving uh, than usual. And uh, Eric Anderson posted a few weeks ago, a link of all the churches in Minnesota who took uh, PPE money, and for the most part, they were fell into one of two categories: they were either mega church, which is interesting, or they were one of those mainline dying churches. They had they didn't hesitate to take it. I you know there's some outliers there, but most of those churches aren't ones you're going to be looking to going. Oh yeah,
1: we want to we want to be like them. One of the reasons I brought this up is because, um, you know, recently with uh, in Minnesota, our Current state of the state, our our governor, and just and legislator, and some of the um, almost unbelievably wicked legislation they've had on transgenderism and abortion, really seeking to make our state that being like a, a fundable industry to attract people to our state by our abortion laws. So basically, you know, trying to benefit out of out of wickedness. Uh, written letters to the governor, met with the governor, tried to do that, that. We've had a heck of a time getting pastors to sign on. And so, as, as somebody suggested to me, I went and looked at the amount of churches that took PPP money, and it almost always fell in line with the guys that won't stand up now are the ones that took the money. And there was, even in the small towns, far shockingly more churches than I ever would have anticipated. Um, I, safe, safe to bet, it was 67% of just places that called themselves churches in some of these small towns. Obviously, the, all the mega churches. But... All the mainline churches, even all the Catholic churches that I saw, but far more even what we would call conservative churches than I would have expected. So then my question would be this. Let's say a church now, whether it's whether it's PPP money, whether it's the use of Romans 13 that became a kind of a favorite verse of the year to justify shutting down or requiring masks and service or things like that, know, we should obey the governing authorities. What is a church's responsibility collectively if they've erred? Like, what would you say to a pastor, elders, or even a lay person is like, you know, that's my church. We did that. No explanation was given years later. You know, we just, we shut down under the guise of Romans 13. Then all of a sudden, six months later, we just opened up randomly. Is repentance required collectively for a church? Or what does it look like?
2: Well, Zardell would say that's easy. Yes. That's the responsibility of elders to stand up. Uh, it's not fundamentally different than the case if there's been a cover-up of uh, sexual misdeeds in the church and the elders haven't dealt with it properly, uh, or theological error, whatever the case may be. It's the responsibility of the elders to stand up and say, we have been wrong, dead wrong. Here's why we were wrong. We're um, asking forgiveness. We hope that you will Grant us forgiveness. It's a genuine repentance. And these are the steps we're taking. And that's another part of your question. So they need to be able to say not only that we've repented, but there need to be fruits appropriate to, worthy of repentance, as the Bible says. So they need to create steps and say, what are we going to do so this doesn't happen again? Would it involve repaying the money if the loan's forgiven? That's one thing. Sometimes you just have to bite the bullet. There's nothing that can be done. You just have to amend your ways. But uh, the biggest thing would be a public acknowledgement of error. I don't, my exposure might be limited. I don't know of any churches, any that took PPB money, uh, whose leaders publicly acknowledged that they were wrong and repented. Maybe there are some, and probably somewhere in the U.S. I don't know of any. That's a sad commentary on the state of the of the church today.
5: Uh-huh. Yeah, there are, a few, there are a few churches that, a uh, select few that that actually repaid the money rather than, taking it as a loan, but, uh, but as, as across the board as, as looking for any repentance for any of the actions, whether it was, whether it was the PPP loan or whether it was the mandates or the closing of the church, uh, enforcing of vaccine mandates or, or pressing people to take it, uh, you know, if they love their neighbor, uh, those kinds of things like, I really haven't seen any repentance for that. That's public. Uh, that there there needs to be. Uh, most of what I've seen is that, well, it was a difficult time. We all made mistakes. Well, let's just move on. Uh, and, and that's that's really all I, I've, I've seen.
3: I think when Andrew speaks of public repentance, knowing him, and knowing that he and I agree on. these these doctrines, he means as wide as it is known that they took PPP money, it should be made known Mm -hmm. that we repent that we took PPP money. And repentance would also address the issue that Levi was addressing earlier. And that is a change in the posture of the church with regard to government. Instead of receiving f- funds from government, the church should be the leading critic of wayward godless governments.
1: Taking an evaluation, just in a broad sense, now that we can kind of look back three years, because it wasn't I think there's there's a couple different issues that seem to be related between the Black Lives Matter George Floyd incident and COVID, uh, as far as Seems that the churches that responded with, say, no to the government were the same churches that did not buy into the social justice pressure. And the churches that gave into government or, or obeyed the government obeyed the the law of what was culturally acceptable or pressured to repent of sins of racism or whatever it was during summer of 2020. Here's a question I have for you related to that. As you look at the landscape denominationally, was there a denomination or a movement of Christians that fared better than others um, during this where you got to see, wow, generally speaking, man, this denomination really did well. Where all these guys, you know, of the other ones, and I'm talking mainly in the conservative uh, denominations, of course, we expected the main line to, to, to take government money. But were you surprised at all? at some that did better than others? Or do you have any evaluation, just general statements on that? I was surprised
4: by how bad they all did. Yeah, I mean, I mean, unless you want to count Wilson and CREC, I, I would guess most of the denominations were pretty much the same.
3: I think uh, I would agree with Levi that um, we would have to judge these matters not at the denominational level, but at the individual church level. Uh, because our denomination, for example, is very different from our congregation. And the same is true with Riverview, correct? Levi?
4: Oh yeah, they can't they can't wait for us to leave.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so how do you explain that then that I mean, I understand I was a former evangelical free church pastor and I think in the list of PP money, I think the Free Church national headquarters based in Minnesota was like number two on the list of the most amount taken. Uh, almost every free they encouraged, you know, very pietistic denomination and publicly encouraged the taking of money. Many did. Now, what saddened me a lot was my my current association fire fellowship of independent reformed evangelicals. I don't know what the PP list, but certainly when we came to the next year's annual conference. Uh, many of the testimonies was how long they'd shut down, how hard it was to wear masks when it was required. And I kept thinking, man. We're reformed officially. Are, should that not be a, a guard against that? I mean, we have confessions that you'd think would be a guardrail. So, why is it? Why would reform? Why did reform denominations who have, in one sense, more confessed truth and more nuanced confessed truth than, let's just say, a kind of a general minimalistic evangelical church, which is minimalized doctrine? Why do churches with strong doctrine? In a reform sense, why didn't they fare well? What is the reason for that, can you say?
4: I'll I'll chime in on that. I don't think we were ever forced to think about church-state relationships as churches until this happened. I was blessed uh, because of influences in my life to have read Schaefer on this and the Christian Manifesto a couple times before 2020 hit. So I'd already thought through all of these things. Most of my peers hadn't done that. Seminaries didn't equip pastors to do that, and seminaries trained pastors to not think about that area of life. And so they were caught flat-footed and Reformed, got reduced to just salvation or doctrines of grace. They don't know about the rest of Reformed history or the rest of Reformed thought. They don't really care.
2: Yeah, I'd say the same thing but in much a much different way. I, I think that it's a mistake to assume, and this particular episode and cluster of episodes proved— it's untrue that sound doctrine and confessional theology sort of automatically leads to a robust Christian worldview. I think uh, a sector of the Reformed Church, of course, that I'm situated in called reformational, neo-reformational with uh, Kuyper and uh, Dewey and Bovink and Van Til and Schaefer and so on. They, they understand uh, that theology, while vital, is not the whole of the Christian faith. They understand that your theology has to shape an entire way of thinking and living. So uh, it's great to affirm the Westminster or London Baptist or whatever, but the affirmation of that truth, even understanding the truth as far as it goes, won't help you in situations like this. You actually have to have an understanding of the Word of God such that you recognize the Lordship of Christ in totality. And as Levi said, think through these issues. Uh, We have those before us that have gone before us that have done that. Uh, actually, uh, the Dutch philosopher, uh, reformed philosopher Herman Duyver actually wrote about this issue, about vaccine and government mandates and so on, and he was strongly opposed to them, um, and Kuiper and various others. So uh, I think that's the problem. I think one final thing, and I'll, I'll get off this. Uh, I think um, that Ardell is right, that uh, we have to look at individual churches and not the denomination. I Thanks. acknowledge that. Having said that, I would say... While there are outliers like that, denominations have worldviews too. Churches have worldviews too. And so, uh, just to put it bluntly, the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, has a worldview. OPC has a worldview. The Southern Baptist Convention has a worldview. And of course, there are differences within them, battles. We have to take that into account. But churches and denominations have worldviews too. And uh, generally, when crises come, they act according to their worldview. And that's what I think happened here.
5: Yeah, and I think there's part two, uh, another element of it, where there were a lot of men who who didn't have a healthy skepticism of science in general uh, or of scientism or too quick to believe what was called the settled science and, and not having just that healthy skepticism and, and even reading, perhaps reading outside of that to, uh, you know, outside of the mainstream. Scientific community that was being at least being put forward in the mainstream media, that you know you would you would gain some other insights of maybe what else might be happening, and uh, I just I didn't see that a lot, and so I think a lot of men perhaps just assumed that that what was coming across from Dr. Fauci or or others was was unassailable.
2: Bob, don't you think in many cases there was sort of a dualism at work there, such that is the idea the Bible is the authority in the church, but outside the church on empirical medical issues, science is the authority. Yes. Uh, that's not a reformed way of thinking, but I think many of them basically would have thought that.
5: Yes. Yeah. I, I think that that was operating there as well. Yeah.
0: Can I put this question forward to you guys? Cause me and a friend were talking about this recently. And I think this goes into what we're, what we're talking about here regarding specifically church leadership and elders. Uh, my friend was lamenting that in his church, there their process for selecting elders seems to be really loose. And the thing that he most questions is whether in our world today, in the church today, should we require some sort of credential or some sort of education for elders? Because it seems like when, when push comes to shove and these things come upon them, they don't have the Christian worldview and they, they fall into scientism and these kinds of things. Can you guys speak a little bit into the eldership or church leadership and maybe the training or should there be requirements extra requirements?
2: Yeah, I'll jump in. I mean, my colleagues might disagree. I absolutely think there has to be rigorous training. I'm not going to say that that has to be in a particular institution. Uh, uh, Spurgeon, I don't believe, had a higher academic degree, and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, of course, had one in medicine. Uh, But there are many people in the history of the church that uh, weren't seminary trained. But the argument that, well, we don't need seminarians in the church, which is correct, is often uh, meant to mean, well, we don't really need people that are sound theologically and with worldview, and that's a false conclusion. So if you don't have some rigorous theological and worldview background, and that's not only that, practical training also is necessary, you need to have that training somewhere. Uh, They need to be widely read one way or the other. So yes, we have uh, undereducated and uneducated and poorly educated men, and sadly these days women that are being ordained to the eldership, and uh, it's really a travesty of what the Word of God demands.
3: Yeah, it seems to me that I would fully agree with Andrew. It seems to me that when we look at the Apostle Paul and his teaching in um, what was the Hall of Tyrannus, wasn't it? Uh, that was that was like a daily um, teaching occasion. I dare say that the elders of the churches that Paul planted, which he, on his first journey, I think it was, he was out for about 18 months and he appointed elders in churches, which means that within 18 months, there were elders who were capable of leading the church and he entrusted that leadership to them. It seems to me that uh, churches are, responsible for this and and rather than farming them out to another institution this is at least one of one of the visions that i have for what we at christ bible church are establishing christ institute churches ought to have whether they call it whatever they call it they ought to have their own institute where they do train their elders their their prospective elders and deacons, and and they ought to be training their own Sunday school teachers as well, to whatever degree they are able to do so. So I, I think that your question, David, is, uh, is exactly on target. Churches should be training their prospective leaders. Otherwise, if they don't, the generation that has Establish the church is going to hand it off to leaders who are incapable, and it's going to be a failure in the end.
1: And I think that the, the training includes a testing too. You know, test them. Are they men of of of? Are, is there faith a genuine faith in the midst of fearful situations, the fear of man, uh, which I think twenty twenty showed a lot. You know, that my companions are those who fear the fear the Lord who walk. Uh, in accordance with his, with his scripture, Psalm 119, but then says so in Proverbs, Proverbs, I think it's 26 or 29, the fear of man is a snare. And I think what it showed is, you know, on paper, we need to train these things, but then we need to test people too. And say, okay, what does it mean? When is faith costly to you? What does it mean to test it in these things? Whether in marriage or, because there's fearful situations that I want to compromise in a marriage all the time or in family.
3: You're getting on to a theme that I was going to address, but I, I decided to hold off, but now I'm not going to hold off. That <laughs> <I didn't>.
1: is <laughs> here we go. Fr- frankly,
3: if I can say it kindly, most reformed pastors and theologians that I know have a pietistic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And by that I mean they see perseverance of the saints as having to do with you know, being faithful to the Lord, being faithful to the Lord. But they never really see that being faithful to the Lord means obeying him with regard to government, obeying him and refusing to, to surrender in fear of humans. Wearing a mask is an issue of perseverance of the saints. Submitting to mandates from fools who are in government positions To get vaccines is a test of one's Christian faith. And people who have surrendered to these things ought to be grateful and delighted and repentant that God is giving them life in which they can now repent for their failures. Can I be more blunt than that?
2: Uh, That was exceedingly exceedingly timid, Ardell. You need to be a little more emphatic. (laughs)
4: Excellent. I think I think I'll I'll put the blunt point on it. We have cowards behind many pulpits and even more in in elder rooms. I mean 2020 showed that any time I have interaction with anybody who's high up in any Christian institution with notable exceptions is what you find there are empty suits, cowards who have climbed the ladder to get there. And it's all about the position. It's not about doing what's right. And it's um it's a sad state. That people, a lot of people get into pastoring, a lot of people get into to being a systematic theologian or a Bible teacher, not because they're courageous individuals, but because they're nerds in that area. And that's what they really care about, is being nerdy
1: in that area, not actually living it out. And could we say that part of repentance and part of God's sanctification might be for a church to go, wait, why do we take the money? I and mean, we could have known this. Naivety only went so far. Was it because that we were afraid of men? We were afraid of people. We were afraid of conflict. We were afraid of if we didn't require masks, then there might be certain people that be really offended by that. We didn't want. We wanted to please everybody to get through this without disruption in our church. And then they
4: were shocked when they couldn't please everyone in 2020. They thought that it used to work before 2020, Like right? We could just make the boat not rock, but the boat was so rocking. They thought if we just keep doing this, people aren't going to get mad. Then people got mad and left their churches because they were, they were like, we thought
1: you'd actually stand up. I think we would say maybe in, in summary of that is, you know, if, if churches have heard that, you know, I think every one of these is like Ardell said, these are, these are opportunities for sanctification and perseverance. And part of that is is asking the Lord to search our hearts and say, okay, this is a test. Why wasn't I courageous? You know, where was fear of man? And what did it reveal? And and what do I need to do moving forward? What do we think of live streaming of worship? That was almost unheard of. I mean, people would do video recordings, but the general live streaming of worship, if it was happening, I didn't know about it. But after 2020, it seems to be normative for a church, not just to have a website, but to offer a live stream.
2: Well, Eric, what? I'm glad you brought that up. We've actually talked about that. And some of us predicted, not that we're great prophets, the normalization of live streaming. And I think what is, of course, many people have gone back to church. I mean, actually physically attended church. But the problem is that uh, there's always this very viable and, in many cases, desirable alternative. That basically we have two ways of attending church here. You actually come physically or you watch via live streaming. Um, that was kind of baked in. That was baked in two or three years ago, uh, and I think that sadly is going to be with us for a very, very long time. And it really is a denial of, as we said years, uh, several years ago, a denial of what it means to be the Ecclesia.
3: I would agree with Andrew, and I would say, I would say this: there may be situations, there may be individuals who are shut-ins who may benefit from live stream but on the other hand why can't they watch a delayed version of it but if but if there's going to be live stream then it should seems to me that there should be a very tight regulation on it and permission with a security key so that the leadership of the church knows who is watching because i know that there are people to this day who Watch live stream, and they occasionally go to church, but watch live stream because it's because it's made available to them, and they haven't been taught properly about what Hebrews ten twenty five really is about. So at Christ Bible Church, we've never talked about this. I don't think Levi, but as long as I'm a, an elder at the church, there won't be live streaming, and I think that Levi agrees with that.
1: <laughs> he better know.
2: <laughs> and I think we need to be careful with our language there too. I think that when there is that kind of live streaming, that it can be very beneficial in these select cases, like Ardell said. But let's not confuse that with attending church. That's not the same thing. I watch my my son as a preacher and pastor up in Vancouver. We sometimes watch his church services, but I would never dream of saying, "Oh, well, that's where we went to church today." Well, we did. Example, we did not attend church.
3: For example, a person who is at home watching live stream had better not be eating bread and drinking a cup
1: when the community Amen. served. Amen. That is not acceptable. So what would you say then to churches that still offer the live stream?
2: I, I, I like Ardell's idea. I've thought of that before, and I'm, that's the first time I've heard anybody articulate it. I think there should be a, a sort of a, a secure password or passcode. Certain specific people in uh, nursing homes, for example, or those that are providentially hindered from attending church. To watch it. I don't think, by the way, that somebody who's just ordinarily sick, you know, you have the flu or something. People should be watching church. Um, years ago, you you miss church, you miss church. Rather than say, oh, we, we got to see it and therefore we got to, we got our church today. No, you didn't get your church today. Sometimes you have to miss because of illness. Well, that happens. But the problem is by normalizing this live streaming, uh, we've basically undermined the nature of ecclesia. I'm glad that Ardell invoked this whole issue of communion, because (laughs) that really shows the tactile aspect of ecclesia, and the fact that you actually can visualize someone preaching and teaching the Word tends to mitigate the effect of that. But when you come right down to baptism, or communion, or hugging one another, or laying on hands, you really see the inescapably tactile, corporeal aspect of worship. And you're able to sidestep that with live streaming, but you're really not sidestepping it. The fact that you can view it doesn't mean that it's lot, that it's somehow what you're doing is church. It's not.
4: It's really just an extension of the multi-site premise that uh, smaller churches are getting on board with without realizing that they'll never be able to compete uh, that way uh, with larger churches. And then they're also undercutting their own, I hate using the term, but their own market, right? There are people who would be attending if you shepherded them that way, who are just watching online. Uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot that could be said about uh Pastor Matt Chandler, positive and negative. But one thing I always appreciate appreciated of him is his online resources. He begins with this: hey, this is not a replacement for the gathering of the local church. Like you can come listen, to, you can listen to my sermons, it can benefit you, but this is not a replacement. For that, we record our sermon audio at Christ Bible Church. And in fact, I just recorded an intro this week that says pretty much that same thing. This isn't meant to be a replacement for the local gathering of the church. It's a supplement, but it's, it's not the church.
3: Also, another thing I think that churches need to grapple with is there is a difference between live stream audio and live stream video. We all saw what happened when cameras were put into the courtroom in 1996, in the OJ Simpson trial changed. It changed everything and cameras in church change everything. When the person who is preaching knows full well that, that he is on video, it changes things. And even, audio has a tendency to change things as well. So when things are captured for posterity, either by audio or video, it's a test of the person's character and boldness and courage to speak truthfully something that is going to be captured and perhaps even disseminated. How widely do you want that that disseminated? I think that every church n- needs to grapple with that And every preacher, every teacher needs to grapple with that, because I think it's very
1: serious business. I would also add to that that I I wonder, you know, if churches have thought, what does it do for you? What does it do to you? I mean, there are certain prayer requests that I share publicly during our prayer time that I cannot imagine sharing. It would even be appropriate for me to share if we had a live stream. Has this made the church more impersonal? I've also thought, and a live stream is not that we don't have the ability or the money, we just w- will not do it ever out of principle. But some of my thought would be is that, you know, churches that are so concerned about c- security and things, all of a sudden you're, you're. I mean, is is there not that type of concern too? Maybe that's an aside that, you know, we've thought about, but um, I would echo with Ardell. You know, there is a part of me as a pastor that it's already easy to want to get likes on, on things. I cannot imagine every Sunday, uh, having that sneaky evaluation, how many people were tuning in this week. And I will say maybe one last comment on that. As, as a pastor in a tourist area uh, in north central Minnesota, uh, I talked to another local church that's fairly like-minded with us, and I asked one of their elders recently, have you seen more of an increase in visitors at your church or an, a decrease since 2020? Now, this being taken into account that our area, the Brainerd Lakes area, has increased significantly in the amount of tourism, period and people moving up to our cabins, both of us have said our church attendance with visitors has increased drastic, decreased drastically. We just do not get the summer visitors like we used to. And my theory in that is that I believe that um, churches, so many of them who live stream have really unbound or debound the consciences from needing to be there on Sunday. I believe a lot of them are probably, if, they're, if, if their church demonstrated that they didn't need to be at church anyway for months on end, when they're up their cabin, long longer consciences are no longer bound. But also, I presume that many of them at least tacitly would watch a live stream or say they're watching a live stream. So that's a sad thing because we used to get a lot of visitors and we just don't anymore.
4: I wouldn't expect that churches that are live streaming are probably having personal requests and prayer time for the most part. I think the church has become rather impersonal a lot before, um, before the live stream hit.
2: And let's not forget that this live streaming only intensifies this mad uh, celebrity culture, such that one aspect of which is the constant temptation to compare one's local pastor with hotshot preacher so and so, pastor of a you know fifteen thousand member congregation that writes you know seventeen books a year and so on. Uh, that undermining of the local church is as uh, one just natural deleterious
0: consequence of this increase live streaming what is the worship of sunday for is it because the thing that i hear people use to justify the live stream and i've submitted some some things for elder board to consider but it's they see the sunday morning worship as a evangelical tool can you define what that what sunday is actually for
2: yeah that's a very good question and uh, it's absolutely dreadfully wrong i don't know how to put it any other way Uh, The church, the ecclesia, is the gathered community of the saints called to um, edify one another and to instruct uh, from the Word of God to partake of the sacraments or ordinances, to stand as sort of God's embassy uh, in a fallen world, to celebrate, uh, particularly on Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, The notion that, you know, this is sort of a place for evangelism, such that some ministers say, every Sunday I preach an evangelistic message. Well, if your evangel includes the totality of biblical revelation, that's fine, but that's not what they mean by that. What they mean is getting unbelievers saved and converted as a result of Sunday preaching. That's not what the church is for on Sunday. That is one aspect of the church's responsibility. That's not chiefly what the church is supposed to be doing on Sunday.
1: Here's another question. We're switching gears a little bit here, but in the last three years, how do you assess the influence of the some of kind of those broad, maybe celebrity... Culture, um, influencer, Christian conservative groups or reform groups, such as Together for the Gospel, um, the gospel, nine marks, X29. I don't even know if we say Christianity today at this point, but why their declining influence? Why have we seen some of them disappear altogether, like Together for the Gospel? Um, and why have others have we seen them? decrease in their influence or kind of spin off an almost embarrassing, cringy article after article such as the Gospel Coalition. That's not to say they aren't still there, but certainly we've seen a declining influence. Why is that? What did 2020 onward do, kind of rapidly increase their descent, if we could say that?
2: It demonstrated the bankruptcy of their pietism. I mean, they were pietistic in some cases for 20 years, well-meaning, right on some things, but uh, Levi was correct earlier. They didn't have a robust Christian worldview. And just at the time when we had the George Floyd incident and Black Lives Matter and then COVID and uh, the acceleration of cancel culture and uh, multiculturalism and all, when all of these things converged uh, in a perfect storm, that was the very time When the theology of people like, let's say, John Piper, for example, was shown to be just sadly lacking because they didn't have anything to say to that. Uh, Only people who had a robust reformational worldview had something to say to it. Uh, The other people that had something to say to it, sadly, were those who had a very anti-Christian but more robust worldview. Uh, sort of the liberation theology, social gospel, social justice people—they certainly had a more robust view than the Pietists did. Though, of course, it was a dreadfully wrong worldview, and that's why they got followers. But uh, I think that what you—the question or the answer to that question—is that sort of Pietistic approach of all those ministries was shown to be bankrupt.
5: Stephen uh, Stephen Wolf has an interesting article out. I uh, just read. I don't agree with you know all where he ends up on a lot of things, but his analysis of uh, where some of these groups have uh, ended is is uh interesting he he finds that some of it's tied into you know what Aaron Rand called the the negative world that we've entered into and that those groups just weren't prepared for that um they were aimed at this neutral world yeah. and when the the negative world kind of ushered in that they just didn't have the the chops for it, in, in, a, in a sense. Um, he said that, uh, you know, they had this neutral world ethos that couldn't hold. And uh, and partly because the era of open debate was gone. So in the neutral world, you could debate issues in the culture. Um, now, you, you don't debate. You're not allowed to debate. So,
3: I think also, practically speaking, I would call it the de-churching. Event and the dechurching of people at the local congregation has had a ripple effect upward to the dechurching or the de- disconnecting of people from these larger uh, conferences as well. Uh, in other words, I think that I think that a lot of people have become lone rangers, uh, and so that they're there's a disconnect from the church there's a disconnect from larger evangelicalism and when you have evangelicals so hotly divided by the major speakers and major writers and when you have a when you have a whole magazine like Christianity Today going farther and farther leftward that's going to have an impact upon the the coalitions Like the Gospel Coalition and others, and I think also the uh, the whole social gospel or social justice. (laughs) That was a that was a very convenient Freudian slip, um, because that's exactly what it is. Uh, The social justice movement, I think, was a major fracturing event for the for the uh, together for the gospel as as I think David Schrock's new book implicitly points out.
4: I think it demonstrated this with the rise of social media and many of us being locked in our houses, frustrated. Uh, In 2020, um, people tweeted out their thoughts on these things in real time. And we saw from people we used to respect, or at that time respected, that they had no idea what was going on that they really weren't as intelligent as their public persona was and that they were being steered uh, in directions that were unbiblical. Again, I think this goes back to the the idea of theological nerds. And so we had we had people who could, who could parse out with the greatest accuracy, the sovereignty of God and human uh, free will and, and all the tensions of TULIP, but they couldn't admit um, critical race theory or cultural Marxism staring them in the face and costing their congregants their jobs. It's like, how can you be so smart over here, but so stupid over here? And that's both the blessing and the curse of social media is these people and their unvarnished takes. We got to see them firsthand and be like, I'm not listening to you
1: anymore. <laughs> you have no idea what's going on.
2: Well said, Levi.
1: How about this then? Um, where is the social justice narrative today? I mean, is anyone hear in, in some ways, and I don't know if this would be discouraging or encouraging, but certainly don't hear much about you know the 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 vitriolic uh you know black men being killed by white cop type narrative uh like we did three years ago. The election's
4: um, coming, just wait.
1: That, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you can actually or I could say Pride Month was quite June was quite underwhelming compared to what we've expected what do you make of some of that
2: i wouldn't i wouldn't i think that's partly true but i wouldn't derive from that uh, a lot of encouragement what happens to these things is there's whenever the revolution becomes routinized then after a while things become less and less controversial i would be more interested in uh surveys as long as they're accurate surveys of how many people actually adopt Tenets of the social justice view and social justice gospel view, rather than how much noise is being made. So um, I think many of these ideas have been just sort of routinized in our culture, and uh, and uh, also in our churches. Now there's a strong, of course, very vigorous pushback against that. I think part of that's more broadly the Trump phenomenon, though, as you know. I'm not a big Trump supporter at all, uh, and a lot of legitimate pushback. Uh, to it, but um, uh, there's—I I wouldn't assume that because Pride Month was not as loud and boisterous that somehow the uh, philosophy and the worldview behind Pride Month is not quite as successful or prominent. It could be because it actually is, and of course, among younger people, it is. I mean, even among younger evangelicals, the LGBT, the basic LGBT agenda is just widely accepted among younger evangelicals. So it doesn't have to be as loud and boisterous. When you win, you don't have to do that.
4: I think with I think June, I read an article on the Wall Street Journal about this. companies were scared in June uh, because of what happened to Bud Light. Uh, so I don't know if that's going to be a long-term gain. Time will tell. but I think I I noticed the same thing you did, Eric, that I wasn't getting as bombarded uh, as before. So th- there has been a significant organized backlash to some aspects of the wokeism that have caused companies to to question whether they truly want to lose billions um, over this. And I think that's largely a good thing. Um, But in the, in the church world, what tends to happen is us conservatives, we get riled up, we get angry and then we lose interest. And uh, the people who are on the left just ride it out. And then they get back to teaching in their seminary classes and they're in their, uh, Christian University classes, and they're writing their books. I mean, all the books that still come on these topics by the major Christian publishers are still terrible. Uh, There are people who are scared of talking about it too loudly anymore, but they they just go about their business, and we lose interest. And uh, for institutions to not go off the rails, as they tend to, you have to remain vigilant, and we don't seem to display the staying power to do that.
3: If you look at New books that are coming out from Inner Varsity, Erdman's, Baker, Brazos, uh, Brazos, and and other publishing, Zondervan, they are flooding the market with junk, utter junk. It's embarrassing. So, I would say I would say that what Andrew has suggested is is in place. It has been normalized. So the social justice movement on race and, and other things, including f- feminism and, and radical feminism, and um, even moving very heavily toward um, same-sex matters, has just become normalized in Christian publishing houses. I'm embarrassed that The Reset Before Us is published by university now. They don't, they don't believe the message of, inter, of the race set before us. There's no way that they, that they believe that. I'm, I'm ashamed.
5: It, it does seem that there's a certain fracturing of certain cultural issues, whether it's the woke issue or whether it's the, the, uh, the alphabet uh, people with the fracturing with the trans movement, with the gay movement. So there, there seems to be some of that going on, but where it's all going to end up I don't know on a cultural level. I think it's still going to remain to be issues that the church we're going to face.
1: Here's a question for you. What encourages you? What have been encouraging trends that you've seen or emphasis maybe that have come out in the midst of COVID or as a necessary kind of evaluation of COVID? Maybe not in the church abroad, but amongst some evangelicals, reformed evangelicals. what are some encouraging signs for you? I'll give you like... one
2: right now. Christ Bible Church, humanly speaking, would not be around were it not for uh, this, because it's a reaction, a godly reaction against that in the Christ Bible Institute now. And there are others around the country like that. So I think that there are these uh, beneficial byproducts of uh, depravity and apostasy and a reaction to these things, as has already been mentioned. Um I think the reaction in uh, corporate America, though we're far, far from having won the battle, I appreciate what my dear friends Jerry Boyer, David Moss, and others have done to push back, going to shareholder meetings and demanding they get out of the the, the political business and get back to their business, which is business. That's just one aspect, uh, but Christians pushing back against Black Lives Matter and against the COVID restrictions, against uh, cultural Marxism, uh, I think that's a good thing. And I think we likely will see more of that. Uh, so I'm definitely encouraged by that. I'm encouraged also by the increase of interest in uh, optimistic eschatologies. I mean, whether it's an optimistic amel or postmillennialism, or for that matter, if you're basically um, optimistic premill, non-dispensational premio, um, I think people are looking for the promises of God to be fulfilled in his church in the present world and not just at the Eschaton, or the Second Coming, and the so-called future millennium. So these are all encouraging signs to me. I
4: think there is a real hunger in the church, in the pews, for um, for the church to actually address these issues, even though there isn't the same hunger from behind the pulpit. Uh, I can't remember it was some Christian big polling agency that's listed uh, beliefs among evangelicals and. They're messed up and in LGBT stuff. But then it also, the vast majority of Christians wanted their pastors to teach more on those issues. The, the problem that the sheep are having is that the shepherds don't want to talk about the issues they're facing because they've bought into pietism. And uh so I think there's a real hunger for that. And I do think that um there's reasons why CCEL, there's reasons why Doug's popularity is soaring, and it's not because of his weird um paedo communion or any of those things it's because he addresses the issues that people are facing right there's a reason why joe boots organization is 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 growing is because those are that is where the future of western christianity needs to move to i think pietism will die i think it is dying i don't think those churches are going to survive the onslaught that's coming
2: Yeah, good Levi. I think pietism tends to do reasonably well in a culture that has been either Christianized or is living on the residue of Christian culture. But uh, when there is sort of a rather rigorous and radical onslaught of cultural depravity, pietism crumbles. And that's why pietism is is, is crumbling today.
1: I've seen a lot more young people, uh, particularly I think just echoing off of Levi, are looking for very practical answers on things that maybe we just presumed as Christians before stuff on child rearing, building a household, even economics and government. I find as a pastor, I am doing a lot more of those type of building up from the pulpit than I did before. And it's not finding just a blank stare, but actually hungry people in that. And I would, I would echo with Levi too. It's very interesting. I wrote a post on this recently about how many young people that I know a couple of pietistic Christian organizations uh, where all their staff members are reading Doug Wilson behind the scenes. And and I look at that and go, I'm praying that it's because they're looking for somebody to tell them they're not crazy when they're actually thinking politically, they're thinking about homeschooling, they're going, okay, is there somebody that can tell me I'm not crazy to think there is a Christian opinion here?
4: That hunger isn't just in the church either. Like if, if you're watching big name figures flirting with Christianity all the time now is because the structures and the foundations are being shaken and people are looking for these answers. And, and in their, their hope to be evangelistic, they're missing the fields that are ripe. Right? The very questions there people are having, especially people who lean to the right, um, where does freedom come from? Why should we have a limited government? Where do human rights come from? Like all these things those were brought to us by the Christian tradition, and people recognize that. People like the Jordan Petersons of the world, who are broadly Christian, but not really Christian, and they realize the goodness of the faith. Why is that not coming primarily from the church? Why does it have to come from a Jungian um, psychologist?
2: Yeah, and I think the issue is potentially more dire than that. I agree with all that. I think that a sort of Anti-Christian right-wingism is just as dangerous in the end as a as a left-wing and anti-Christian left-wingism with uh, wildly influential books among young people like Bronze Age Mindset and other sort of pagan notions of anti-Christian pagan notions of uh, the right wing is is dangerous. I mean, we have the answers as Christians, but because of Pietism, we have not offered distinctively Christian answers to these issues. And I'm glad there's some Christians are, as has been mentioned, but there needs to be more of that. Pietism can't meet that. A Bronze Age mindset can can meet that, sadly, with a, a an ancient uh, demonic paganism, uh, male centered, masculine paganism. Uh, but it's just as wrong as radical feminism. So the uh, Jesus Christ is the answer to everything, and we have to say that, and we have to not just say it, but also produce materials that demonstrate it. Otherwise, what would
1: you say um, that uh, maybe churches, as we think about, like Levi's last point about evangelism, you you know, we've often, I think to a certain degree, separated probably in a pietistic way or a revivalistic way, you know, uh, evangelism is is getting somebody to uh, profess, We, we share the tenets of justification by faith alone, or we go right to the law of God uh, and Obviously, that's true and necessary, but how can these be tools for evangelism now? Some of these new interests, as Levi talked about it. Somebody want to kind of go further on that a little bit?
2: Well, I'd recommend Levi, who's been reading Schaefer and his idea of pre-evangelism. I think discussing how some of that could be apl- applicable in this situation might be extremely helpful.
3: Greg Demi had an article on Christ overall about a week, week and a half ago on the use of Genesis, the use of the beginnings, apologetically and evangelistically. I think he's onto it. The very basic issues of life, of origins, purpose of life, work, uh, sexuality, all of those issues are addressed in the very beginning. So that, so that uh, Andrew often speaks of protology, not proctology, but protology, um, and protology—biblical protology—is is the root of evangelism, and the root of the whole Christian worldview. So, it, I think young people and older people as well, but particularly this generation is is in dire need of hearing and understanding. The significance of Genesis. I've been invited to speak at University of Minnesota, University of Northwestern, I should say. The Christians for Liberty Club has invited me to speak, and they and they precisely want me to address that issue: Uh, the significance of Genesis, the significance of the beginnings for for Christian living and for understanding the issues of Christian Liberty and Christian living. Uh, so I'd encourage people to take a look at Greg Demi's article on Christ overall. It was in, it was in the, um, August series on beginnings.
4: Yeah. So Schaefer's um, is pre evangelism. Nancy Piercy talks about that as well in, in her works as a student of Schaefer. Uh, we, we can't evangelize without Genesis. We never really could. We just had a culture that assumed it, and now we we don't. So we have to get back to using Genesis. And um, Schaefer talks about this reality that he realized as he was evangelizing people with the Christian worldview that he was he was pulling away their their um, foundations that were holding up their roof, and the roof was going to fall down on their head, and he was pushing them to the brink of despair. And he would often question himself if he should be doing this because he realized that they may just kill themselves. Like he's he's showing them that like, Nietzsche is right. Like this is absurdity. There's no meaning. This is all pointless. This is where your worldview leads. I think we're getting to that point as a culture. And a lot of people are getting to that bottom and realizing there's got to be something else. And we need to be ready to speak into that into all of life.
2: And I think it was David Wells that said something very profound years ago. He said, the gospel presupposes a worldview. And uh, to most people today, because they don't share a worldview that many Americans would have, and many people in the West as late as, you know, 50 to certainly 100, 150 years ago, um, the message Christ died for you and uh, substituted on the cross, and if you trust in him— You'll have eternal life. That's all true. But that has to be embedded in a particular way of understanding the world. And so I think if we don't, if we aren't prepared to articulate that Christian worldview, the gospel just can't be effective. Uh, Wells also said the gospel has meaning only in a moral universe. It only has meaning in the kind of universe God created. But if you believe it's a, if you believe it's a man-created universe, if you believe that sex is a social construction— if you believe in existentialism, then the gospel has no meaning in that universe. <laughs> so that's why, um, through the power of the Spirit of God, you have to preach the totality of the gospel, which is the gospel worldview. And our churches sadly aren't equipped by that uh, to do that. So that's, I think, what some of the churches here are doing, that's what CCL's doing, other Christian ministries are doing, and that's one of the great revivals we need today, if we're to have a revival of evangelism.
0: Let us go up to Zion, let us draw near to the Lord our God, come let us go up to Zion, let us draw near to the bread.